So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we pray that now you'd open the word to our understanding. And, and really, Lord, build us into your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you often will hear people say a phrase like, I didn't see that one coming. Right now in the world of sports, there's an incredible story that everybody in the baseball world is saying, I didn't see that one coming. There is a college World Series held every year in Omaha. The championship, two out of three games, will be between Arizona and Coastal Carolina University from the greater Myrtle Beach area, Conway area. And it's, a, it's an incredible story. Coastal Carolina had to beat a very good NC State team two out of three games they did. Then they had to play one of the perennial powerhouses in the nation, the Louisiana State University. They beat LSU unbelievably. And then they made it to the tournament. There are eight teams ranked one to eight. Coastal Carolina was ranked number eight. They played the number one seed Florida Gators, and they beat the Florida Gators. And then they turned around, and they beat Texas Tech, and they beat Texas Christian University two out of three games. And everybody in the sporting world is saying today, I didn't see that one coming. It happens historically. December the 25th, 1776, there was a motley army led by a guy named George Washington, They'd experienced defeat after defeat. They were at a low ebb emotionally. Washington knew that something had to happen to recharge his army and to recharge the emotional state of the colonies as they fought against Great Britain. And so on Christmas night, he did something incredibly difficult and risky. He took his whole army and he took them across the Delaware River in the ice to attack the Hessians or some Prussians that had been hired by the British to fight against the colonies. And so he took his men, and if you'd been there that night and you'd gone behind them, you could have followed where they were treading through the snow because of the blood that came from their feet. Many of them, oh, up to half, had no shoes. They were wrapping their feet in rags. And so they surprised the Hessians. The, the colonial army lost two men to exposure. They killed 88 Hessians and captured 1,000. It was an incredible victory that reverberated throughout the colonies and gave fresh hope. But everybody said on the afternoon after that early morning battle, I didn't see that one coming. December the 7th, 1941. There was a situation called the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. The head of the armed forces and the head of the Navy Facility were playing golf in that beautiful morning. They heard sirens. They quickly left the golf course as the U.S. fleet was caught in harbor. Most was sunk, including the USS Arizona, with 1,177 men on board who died. Our Air Corps was caught on the ground. Air Corps was destroyed in minutes. It was a devastation that was complete. We lost that day 2,403 people. And the next day, the President of the United States stood before the combined House and the Senate, and he said, this is a day that will live in infamy. In other words, we didn't see this one coming. In our own lifetime, September the 11th, 2001, the two towers in New York, and all of us who watched it, and all of our leaders said, we didn't see this one coming. Well, we come to part of the scripture where we can never step away and say, man, I didn't see that one coming. Because Peter has labored to show us the false teachers and what they did and how they operated and, and how they carried out their 
plan. And so we come to the last couple of chapters of this book is chapter 3, verse 17, where Peter writes this. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. He says, therefore, brothers, therefore, a new section of the book, the closing section, Therefore, brothers, knowing this beforehand. Now, what does this refer to, knowing this beforehand? Well, the false teachers, what they taught. The false teachers, Peter says, will come in among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies centered around a message of liberty and sensuality. And they will lead many astray. And because of that, the truth will be blasphemed. And, and these teachers will carry around two major points. They'll say, where is your God Everything goes on and on and on. Where is this God you talk about? And the second thing they're going to say is, and, and there's not going to be any judgment. If you can't define God, and if God is not here, and God is nowhere around us, then there's not going to be a judgment. So live the way you want to. And another cut that they introduced in their false teaching we saw last week, they twist the Scriptures. They twist the Scriptures, and they misinterpret Paul and the gospel of grace. And they said something like this that I said became known as antinomianism. They said, you know, since you're saved by grace alone through the work of this man named Jesus on the cross, he says, then if that's the way you're saved, you can live the way you want to. You can live with unbridled sensuality. You can live a lustful, careless, selfish life because it's no big deal. And the Bible says time after time that we're saved for a purpose, and that's to glorify God. We're saved to live a holy life. We're saved because we're his workmanship. And so they just twist it and, and turn it around. It's called antinomianism. And I remember talking to a man 20 years ago, 25 years ago, Gone to see him. I'd heard that he left his wife and his children. Claimed to be a Christian. I said, what's going on? He said, well, you're not going to believe this. I was playing tennis. And the Lord told me I was supposed to be with a woman who was playing on the next court next to me. And so I approached her, and she was open to it, and now I'm, I'm with her. And I said, that was not the voice of the Lord. That was the voice of the devil. And it's from the pit of hell. And it's against his word and it's against his character. It's always interesting to me when somebody feels compelled to leave their wife. They're usually 20 years younger. They're looking for a trophy wife and she's looking for a sugar daddy and they're both in the pit of hell. I said, that was the voice of the devil. You repent and you run back to your wife if she'll have you. You're destroying your wife. You're, you're incredibly damaging your children. You are walking away from the Lord. It's just antinomianism. It happens all the time everywhere. So, so tonight, today I want to talk about how do we maintain our stability. The, the first is this, what I'm talking about. You've got to know beforehand the work of the devil and his plan. The devil travels along well-known paths. Listen to Jude verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The same, the same, the same traveled path. They, they pervert the grace of God and they turn into this 
libertine sensuality as they deny the reality of Christ our Savior and Lord. The devil travels around well-known paths. So, so you see, we should never say, I didn't see that coming. Give me this example. In 1985, there's a Super Bowl. It's the Chicago Bears had a great season, and they won 46 to 10 over the New England Patriots. It was a total wipeout. One of the leaders of Bears was this guy. His name is William Perry, nicknamed The Fridge. Played from Aiken, played for Clemson. And I've, I've always thought, that's not a real fun nickname, The Fridge. No, maybe Adonis, you know, the Greek god, or maybe the beast, but the fridge is just not a real awe-inspiring nickname. Maybe it's because he was bigger than a fridge, which he was, or he cleaned out everybody's fridge when he visited them. He was a big guy. He was a defensive tackle, and he was a mammoth man. I mean, 280, 290, easily. So this is what happened midway in the, in the season. The Chicago Bears had a running back who was one of the greatest running backs in the history of the NFL. His name was Walter Payton. Walter Payton that year gained 1,600 yards. He was an incredible running back and a, a wonderful man. But midway through the season, Mike Ditka, the coach, came up with this formation. That's William Perry, 290 pounds in the backfield. What he would do is he would, he would get the fridge, and the fridge would get a running start, and he would go off tackle and knock over five people and Walter Payton would come walking in behind him and gain five, six, seven, eight yards. If it's third and go from the two, the fridge knocked over three people, gave him all concussions, and, and, and Walter Payton goes in. But you knew what was going to happen. It never was, well, this guy may go out in the flat and get a pass, or he may go, go, go down deep. No, 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 no. The fridge is going to go off tackle and knock everybody down. He's a bowling ball. There are pins. Boom. And that's what happened. There was no, the, the defensive coordinator knew what was going to happen. They couldn't stop it, though. So I, I look at that. There's no doubt about what's going to happen. They knew it. So I'm saying as we look at this, we should say, I didn't see that coming. Because we know beforehand the devil's plan, the devil's path, and what he's about. The second way we maintain our, our stability is that we do not lose our stability by standing firm in the gospel of grace. Second Peter is written to contend for this faith and to trumpet the grace of the Lord. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, I write to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And think about that. A faith in this early young church, new believers. And he says, you have a faith of equal standing with the apostles. You're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you've got it all. And he says, and as you understand that, may grace and peace be multiplied into, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So as you understand the gospel of grace, may, may grace and peace be multiplied in your life in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Savior and our Lord. It says you, you stand firm in the gospel of grace, which gives you stability and hope and a legacy. And he says this, do not be carried away by the error of lawless men, or lawless people. The word for carried away here means to, to drift. You just drift. You just drift, 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 drift. And as I looked at this, I thought, how, how are we carried away? And Peter is going to great lengths to remind them of the gospel continuously. So, so I said to myself, Seth, you're carried away as you forget the gospel of grace. 
He says in chapter 1, verse 12, I, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you already know them and are established in the truth. He says, you're established, but I want you to get even deeper in the truth. So I'm going to remind you. Verse 13, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Don't forget. Verse 15, I'm going to make every effort so that after I leave or my departure has come, you can recall these things. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he says, In both of my letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you can remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He stir you up to remember, remember, remember. And I, I, why does he say this? Let me tell you why. Our hearts are spring-loaded to forget the gospel of grace. We fall into the trap of, I've got, to, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And, and the devil wants to keep us from seeing the glory and the goodness and the beauty of Christ. There's a famous preacher who made this statement in a sermon I read recently. It said that there are many people here who have heard the gospel and know the gospel, but it's never gotten into their hearts. And therefore, they're unhinged when trouble hits. And I say to myself, do I get the gospel? It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's about the beauty and the grandeur and the goodness of Christ who is my sacrifice. Like the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Are you rediscovering the gospel of grace? Do you understand it? Do you understand the glory and the goodness of sins forgiven? And then there, there's kind of a polar opposite. There's a polar opposite, and that's people that really, you, you, you kind of have the elder brother syndrome and the prodigal son, and you think, well, you know, I, I, know, I know I need a Savior, but I'm really not that bad. And so when Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the, the iniquity of us all, you really think, you know, sheep are, 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 are easily manipulated. They're kind of not real smart. Sometimes they jump off cliffs. Really, those people are sheep, but I am a lion. And I've just gone on the wrong direction, on the savannah. And I just need a gentle correction. No, you're a sheep. And you need a shepherd. And apart from the shepherding grace of Christ, you're undone. It's like the story about Winston Churchill that I love. Churchill had a, had a valet who was a committed Christian. And one day, Churchill was being very arrogant with his valet. And his valet had all they could take. And he says, you know, Mr. Churchill, maybe I shouldn't say this, but as the Book of Common Prayer says, we are all miserable sinners. Sir, we are worms. And Churchill said, yes, that is true. We are worms, but I am a glowworm. Well, no, you're a sheep. You need a shepherd. So my, my question is, do, do, do you, are you discovering continually the gospel of grace, the beauty of Jesus, the wonder of sins forgiven? Do you celebrate that? See, that, that keeps you 
stable. See, it gives you stability because if you're that way, it will keep you centered on Christ and, and you won't be centered on yourself and your needs and you won't keep score and you'll be quick to forgive and you'll be easy to live with and you'll be filled with the laughter and singing and, and dancing and, and, and it's just a good place to be. And all of us can testify, many of us, we've been in the wrong place at times. We do keep score. We do forget. We do this. We do. And we really think that maybe we are glow worms. No, when you're in Jesus, it, it just keeps you that way. It gives you stability. It gives you joy. It gives you purpose. Therefore, my application, therefore, I, I must be reminded of the gospel of grace, and I must have teachers and mentors and friends and brothers in the Lord and family members who speak grace to my life, who speak Christ into my life. There's a wonderful historical story or, or, or very instructive story. In 2 Kings, there is this ungodly king married to a horrendous woman, Ahab and Jezebel. And they had a child, we think, Atalia. And Atalia married a man, the, the, the offspring of this horrendous man and this wicked woman. And Atalia married a man, and when this man became king, her, she, his, her, he killed his six brothers, just murdered them. So he'd never have anybody that would ever challenge him. And so he dies and she declares herself to be queen. And she kills her sons and her daughters-in-law and her daughters and his sons-in-laws and all of her grandchildren. Familiacide. I mean, it's a horrible thing. So if you're getting ready to have a child, do not name your child Atalia or Jezebel. Bad names. Okay? So Atalia kills everybody. But one little baby, a guy named Joash, a little baby boy, a little, little baby boy was secretly taken out of the palace and put in the temple, and he was instructed by a godly priest named Jehoiada. And Jehoiada protected this little boy and instructed him and cared for him and made sure he was safe, far from the reach of his grandmother. And when the little boy turned seven, seven, Jehoiada called in some faithful guards faithful members of the military and said, it's time to get rid of this wicked woman and put the rightful king on the throne. He says, you do this, you do that, you station yourself here. I'm going to hold him up. He says, behold, Israel, your king, Joash. And he did. And the people said, thank you. Get rid of that woman. And they got rid of her. And Joash became king and he reigned for seven, for 40 years. But this, this, this little verse, this is in 2 Kings chapter 12. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of Jehovah all his days because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. See, this, until this priest died, he spoke into the life of King Joash. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord God Jehovah all this day because Jehoiada spoke the truth into his life. And I read that and I thought, I need people who are speaking into my life. I need people, teachers, mentors, family members who, who are speaking into my life. Because the pages of Scripture and church history are littered with the lives of people who began well and crashed. And I don't want to be there. I need Jehoiadas in my life. And, and so I need to get into the gospel of grace. Another reason I'm carried away is that I, I forget the battle. This book of 2 Peter is all about a battle, about false teachers, about men we just saw last week who came in and they tw 
twisted the truth. They just twisted the Bible to say what it doesn't say. And it was all about sensuality. And I'm, I think of Psalm 143, where David is dealing with some sin in his own life, either I wouldn't know what it was exactly, but he, he prays this prayer, and it's a prayer pleading. He said, God, I need you. Listen, Psalm 143, uh, verses 3 and 4. The enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like the long, those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me, and my heart within me is applaud, appalled. He said, I, I, I'm undone. I'm crushed. I'm beat to the ground. My heart is appalled. My spirit faints. And he says this in verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Here's a man who understands, brothers and sisters, he understands the battle. He understands the battle. He understands their enemies pursuing him, and he's pleading, God, please, please let me see you. Please let me know you. See, so if I'm in battle, I must have a battle plan. The year's 1862, war between the states. We just had the second battle of Manassas or the second battle of Bull Run. The South won a, a glorious victory. There's a huge army from the North Carolina, the Army of the Potomac, 120,000 men led by George McClellan. And there's the Southern Army, Army of Northern Virginia, led by Robert E. Lee, maybe 60,000 men, two to one, easy, maybe more. And Robert E. Lee knew that they had to end the war quickly because the South could not fight a war of attrition. And so he came up with this daring, bold, some people say foolish move. He divided his small army in two. And one group went north to disrupt the supply chain of this huge army of Potomac so they couldn't eat and couldn't get weaponry. And they were going to disrupt the supply chain and go into Washington or Philadelphia and sue for peace, whereas the other half was going to stay south and protect Richmond and the south from this huge army of 120,000 men. So they make this incredible move of military genius under Robert E. Lee, and some orders were written to an army under a man named D.H. Hill. They were delivered. One of the men read them, wrapped them in three cigars, put them in his pocket, got up to leave, and fell out of his pocket. In comes a group of troops from the north. A private from Indiana finds the cigars and some orders. And he says, man, cigars. We said, hey, this may, this may be important. Takes it to a sergeant, sergeant to a captain, captain to a major, major to a colonel, colonel to a general. And they unroll the orders that tells about the splitting up of the Army of Northern Virginia. They're now defenseless if they can react. And, and there's a man there who had worked with a quartermaster who wrote the, wrote the orders. He says, that's his, that's his handwriting. This is the real deal. These are the orders. And they take it to General McClellan. And General McClellan reads them, and he jumps to his feet, and he says, now I have Bobby Lee. I will destroy him. That's what he called Robert Lee, Bobby Lee. 
And what he did, he took his huge army and he put it in such a way that they could not disrupt his supply chain. But that's all he did. And they had the Battle of Antietam, the most bloody day of the war. It was a, it was a nobody won. The Army of Northern Virginia retreated. The Army of the Potomac did nothing. In retrospect, historians are absolutely flabbergasted that General McClellan did nothing. He did nothing. He just moved his army a little bit. He did nothing. He could have easily taken the army and pulverized one army to the north and then pulverized the army to the south. And most historians feel the war between the state would have been over in August of 1862 instead of April of 1865. And hundreds of thousands of men's lives would have been spared. He did nothing. And I look at us and I say, I've got the devil's game plan. I know what he's about. I know what the false teachers are about. What am I doing to guard myself? What am I doing? And I turn to the book of Jude. And, and the book of Jude talks about these people that are false teachers. And he says they are, he uses a lot of the same language as Second Peter. They are blemishes on your love feast. So they feast with you without fear at the Lord's Supper. They, they are looking after themselves. They're waterless clouds. Peter used that word. They are swept along by winds. They're fruitless trees and laid on them. They're twice dead. They're uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, casting out the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They're a tough group. And what do you do? Go down a few verses, and he says in verse 20, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God and, and wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed to us. He says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. He says, grow in the Lord. Think Christianly. Think biblically. Now, we're in this election year and we're going to be inundated with news and it's going to be ongoing and it's going to be nonstop. Let me tell you something. I don't watch the news. I read a newspaper. I read some periodical. I don't watch the news. Because the same thing is said on Monday, the said on Friday, usually. Just watch a half hour on Monday and a half hour on Friday, same thing. And I, here's my challenge. For every, every hour you watch the news, spend 30 minutes reading something that will build your heart and soul. Meditate on Scripture. Get some good books. You know, and I'm going to tell you something else. Next January, if we have a President Clinton or a President Trump or a President Brown, you know what? I, I'm not running. I just... Listen, God is still on the throne, and we can trust him. And Proverbs says the, hands, uh, the, 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 the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord like a channel of water. He turns it wherever he wishes, and we, we trust the Lord. So we don't despair. We pray, but we don't despair. So let's build yourselves up in the most holy faith. You have a game plan. Number, number two, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray biblically. Pray in the power of the Spirit with your sins confessed. And keep yourself in God's love. Make sure your relationships are good. Make sure you're, you're thinking about the glory of Jesus and what he's done for us. May that be the centerpiece of your thinking. And then wait with tiptoes and expectation for the new heavens and the new earth. That's the game plan. But, but don't be like McClellan. Would you, 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 have the, you, have, you have the enemy's instruction manual and you do absolutely nothing. The third way we maintain stability is that, that we, we just take care. 
Well, we take care. We, we're on our guard. He says, but you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, be on your guard so that you'll not be carried away, drift, 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 because the teaching of lawless people and you lose your own stability. We just take care. Take care means that you're on your guard. You guard yourself. See, we saw last week the one thing that the adversary does is he twists the Bible. He twists the Scripture. So we say, Lord, give us a clear understanding of the Bible. Let us understand what Peter says in chapter 1 when he says in verse 19, he says, and we have something more sure than visions or history. He says, we have the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We have the prophetic word made more sure. So you pay attention to that and you make that the center of your thinking and the center of your mental digestion. And you be there knowing that no prophecy ever came by man's own inclination, but God carried people along by the Holy Spirit. And so we don't twist the Scripture. I was reading a theological journal a couple weeks ago about Lewis Carroll and Lewis Carroll who wrote Alice in Wonderland and Lewis Carroll uh, was this person who was a professor of philosophy said that he was a lifelong committed member of the Anglican Church. And I thought, well, that's really cool. I didn't know that. So he talked about Lewis Carroll's faith and how he was never married, but he loved photography and artistry, and he loved children, and he would, his mind was captivated by a guy named George Williams, who always also captivated the mind of C.S. Lewis. And then he started reading, quoting some of the letters by Lewis Carroll, and he wrote a letter to his sister, and I was reading, it was a good letter, and then he said this, and I just, a red flag went up in my mind, and Alarms, he said this. He said, I, if I were forced to believe that the God of Christians was capable of inflicting eternal punishment, I should give up Christianity. And I read that and I thought, how, how dare you, really? See, I have no right to sit in judgment on the Word of God. The Word of God judges me. I, I, when he said that, it, my heart broke. But, but it can happen all the time. So we don't sit in judgment on Scripture. We take care. We take care that we're, we're clearly biblical. We take care because we saw last week in verse 16 where, where Peter says that, that Paul writes things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. And I said last week that we don't know if the ignorant and the unstable refers to the teachers or to the recipients. For our understanding this morning, just by way of application, I'm going to say the recipients. There are many, many, many people who are here today who are very bright. And this is not talking about native intelligence or IQ scores. It's talking about how you receive and apply the Bible. You see, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Happy is the man. Joyful is the man who doesn't do that. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. But if you turn it around conversely, it says, Cursed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners and sits in the seat of mockers. If you want to forfeit God's blessing in your life and miss out on the happiness of the Lord, then what you need to do is you need to walk in the counsel of ungodly people who mock the reality of God. You need to listen to them 
and entertain their values and, and be, be, be on the same philosophical, intellectual plane they are on, where you, you mock God. And, and you, need to, you, you need to stand in the way of sinners. You need to stand with people who, who say these things. You need to be, they need to be your best friends. You need to have unobserved, un, ongoing company with them that has no types of limitations. You, and, and then you sit in the seat of mockers. You, so you sit and you entertain with them, and they're your bosom buddies. If you do that, you forfeit your blessing. And I realize in my own life, at this advanced age, that I'm just a couple of decisions away from making bad decisions when I ignore the clear teaching of the Bible. And so I'm a ba- we're in a battle. We have to gauge ourselves. And then it says there's this destruction. They, they twist the Bible to their own destruction. There's a destruction that awaits. I, was, I just read a book called Eruption. It's about... Mount St. Helens. And many of us remember in May of 1980 when Mount St. Helens erupted and the horrendous issues that happened when that volcano erupted in southern Washington state. Let me just read a couple of things from this book. It says, the, the hurricanes and tornadoes still struck the south and the midwest, by the way, which we would find out three years after Mount St. Helens when something called Hugo came through Charleston. And they struck with alarming frequency. The last volcano to erupt in the contiguous United States had been Lassen Peak in Northern California in 1917, so long ago and in such an isolated part of the country that it was all but forgotten. The last earthquake in the contiguous U.S. to cause more than 100 fatalities was in Long Beach, California, in 1933, 50 years before St. Helens. The United States felt settled and mundane as if Americans had tamed not just the landscape but the very geological foundation on which their homes, roads, and businesses stood. That a formerly tranquil mountain in an otherwise unassuming and beautiful range of peaks could suddenly sprout Fire seemed almost miraculous, and yet it did. It was the single most powerful natural disaster in the U.S. history, more powerful than Hurricane Katrina that hit New Orleans in 2005, more powerful than the 1906 earthquake that destroyed San Francisco. The eruption generated one of the largest landslides in recorded human history. It devastated an area four times the size of Washington, D.C., and it killed people 13 miles away. 57 died. It's on a Sunday morning. Most authorities say that if it had erupted on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, 700 to 1,000 people would have perished because of all the loggers that worked around Mount St. Helens. This, this blew my mind. So ash spewed up. And commercial airlines fly at 28 to 32,000 feet. The ash that spewed up was 60,000 feet. Went all the way around the world eventually. Unbelievable. A man stopped me after the service and said our, our house in New Jersey is on the same latitude and line as Mount St. Helens on that Saturday. Our whole, our whole porch was covered in ash. Unbelievable. So, it's, it's, so this book was a pretty amazing book. And then he writes in the epilogue, he writes this, and this is what struck me. So people 
elsewhere may congratulate themselves for living in less dangerous parts of the country, but such complacency would be misguided. Now, I think this was written as a joke and a copy editor didn't get it. Listen. According to a 2006 study, 91% of Americans live in places with a moderate to high risk of earthquakes, volcanoes, tornadoes, wildfires, hurricanes, flooding, high wind damage, or terrorism. Now, I don't know where the 9% live where there's not any terrorism potentially. I mean, I'm from Yadkinville, North Carolina. I, terrorists can get there if they could ever find us, you know? I mean, you're not safe. You're not the 9%. And then he says this, in many ways, we are all like the people camping northwest of Mount St. Helens in the weeks and the days before or the day of the volcano's eruption, blissfully unaware of the risk we face. I said, that's right. See, we live in a world that's fallen and filled with dangers, but we know it. We should never stand back and say, oh, boy, that caught me by surprise. Oh, that's, that, we should never say that. We know these things beforehand. And so I say, in order to keep your stability, understand the devil's plan. Understand his roadmap. Understand what he's about. Understand these false teachers. And, and, and glory in the gospel of grace. And understand the battle so you won't be carried away. And stand strong. Stand strong. And be people of, 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 of biblical fidelity and integrity. Be on your guard. And may God bless us for the future generations. May God bless us to extend the kingdom. May God bless us to give us the passion to know him and to see his glory extended around the world. So keep yourself in the love of God. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Wait, wait. And groom yourself and grow in the way of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us, and thank you that you have given us the Bible that points to the strong reality of a triune God who is eternal and glorious and good and shows us the plan of salvation through the cross and, and gives us a hope and a legacy and a place to stand. And Lord, I, I pray that as the people of God, we would not say, boy, that took me by surprise because we know the devil's plan. We know what happens. We know how people twist the scripture. So, Lord, let us be people who walk with knowledge. And, and let us be people who grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Thank you for your tender mercies. Preserve us in the Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.